Good morning. It is good to see everybody here today. Find your seats, grab your Bibles or your phones, and open them to James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. The title of our passage this morning is Toxic Treasure. And I was thinking about that uh, today, um, or not today, but this week while I was passing out some things and just kind of praying for the folks that live in the neighborhoods that I was leaving things for and just thinking about, man, what if a visitor showed up on Sunday and just thinking about, man, what a shocking passage this is in James. And so I want to start by just laying a foundation. Actually, um, I was blessed this week. I went to youth group and was just listening to Patrick share with the students in the youth ministry. And I was just so encouraged by what he shared. And I want to actually open with a verse that, that he shared in, in youth group. And it's Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And I love this passage. And it really is, when, when you think about it, this passage really just brings confidence and perspective to what we do in life. And it's actually, it's Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And this is what it says. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And when we go through James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, you will see why that is so important. Uh, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You know, I was thinking about what is so powerful about that passage is that Jesus died for ungodly sinners. Now, if you think about it, if, if Jesus died for people and he said, God just says, look, you don't have to be that good, but you got to be a little good, and then I'll die for you. If Jesus died for people that were a little good, you'd always be worried, am I good enough? Um, but from that perspective, Jesus has no standards. You're a sinful person. You're a bad person. You're not even good. And Jesus died for you. And this is the confidence that we have because of that. It's all because of Jesus. It depends not at all on us and our righteousness. God's merciful. The offer of salvation is for every person. And that's the thing that I love so much about the gospel message is that it's good news. And it starts with bad news. And the good news is, man, if you wake up and you see yourself accurately, you see sinfulness, you see weakness in your life, hey, your eternal destiny is not dependent on you. It's dependent on Jesus. But here's one of the things that we know is that God is merciful. He pours out his mercy on mankind. But God's mercy is available during this life. The moment a person dies and leaves this life, God's mercy is no longer available. And so that's the thing that we need to think about is that when we view life, we need to understand it in the context of eternity. And one of the things that James helps us with is he helps us think about what really matters. 
Now, as you think about this, have you ever struggled with envying rich, wicked people? And when I say wicked people, I don't necessarily mean the Hitlers of the world, but maybe just movie stars, athletes, people that are talented, that are rich, that they just seem like they have it all, but they're people without God in their life. Have you ever struggled with envy toward folks like that? Um, Man, the passage that we're going to read this morning will remind us that that is not something to envy. When was the last time you turned on your, flipped on your TV and you watched some show like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Uh, Is that a TV show? I, I think it is. I know I've been flipping around and just see people that are so rich and they have cars and they have houses. And I remember one time I saw an interview with Garth Brooks and I think it was on Oprah, but I'm not sure. Um, But he just says, I am so rich that my grandkids and great grandkids could never spend all my money. And do you know there's websites that you can go to to see how much money people have? Um, He has close to half a billion dollars. (laughs) Um, Tom Cruise has like $577 million. That's more than half a billion dollars. And if you think about how much money that is, when was the last time you went through one of the richest neighborhoods, huge houses, and thought, man, I feel sorry for these people? (laughs) That's not the way we view life. And now add to that, Sometimes you see people that are rich, and they're actually wicked. They got their money from crushing people, destroying people, um, doing things that are just terrible. I mean, just th- let's just think about the news. We see rich people with lots of money, and the rules don't apply to them. They just pay, pay somebody off, get their kids in college. Or somebody else who recently has been in the news, committed suicide in prison, but was so rich and abused and committed so many just terrible acts against people. And how about if in your life you see people who get rich on the backs of other people, social injustice. They benefit while others suffer. And one of the things that we're going to see in this passage is that this is actually what James is talking about, and he's looking at the believers in this church, and many of them are suffering at the hands of the wicked. And so in this passage, it's actually shocking. It's kind of surprising. But James says, no, here's how you should see life. Uh, I was thinking about how we can get wrapped up in that. And how many of you guys have ever um, heard the song, uh, Buy Me a Boat? You guys ever hear that song? I want to read the words to that song. This is by Chris Janison, and I looked him up, and he only has $6 million. So he's actually not that rich. So I realize why he's whining here. He doesn't have a half a billion dollars, only six million. So this is, this is the words to his songs. And, and actually, as I think about it, this encapsulates the perspective that many people have. Listen to this. He says, I ain't rich. No, that's okay, six million. Uh, I ain't rich, but I sure want to be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that kicked the bucket, and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. And then this is what he says. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it could buy me a boat. 
It could buy me a truck to pull it. It could buy me a Yeti 110, iced down with some silver bullets. I had to look that up. A, a Yeti 110 is a $500 ice chest. They sell them on Amazon, spe specifically de uh, designed for rafts so that they won't fall out of the raft. And silver bullets, that's Coors beer. So it'll buy me an ice chest full of beer that won't fall out of my boat. <laughs> Yay. Or, or yeah, I know what they say. Money can't buy everything. Well, maybe so, but it'll buy me a boat. And then he goes on, and this is actually the part of his song that actually gets my attention most. He says, they call me a redneck, white trash, and blue collar, but it could all change if I had a couple million dollars. I keep hearing that money is the root of all evil. That's a misquote. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. But he says, um, he's actually going to refer to Scripture twice. I keep hearing that money is the root of all evil and that you can't fit a camel through the eye of a needle. That's what Jesus said about rich people not being able to make it into heaven. So he's referring to those two things, and he says, I'm sure that's probably true, but it still sounds pretty cool. Um, it can buy me a boat. You, you want to know what he's saying? He's like, yeah, okay, well, money maybe brings lots of evil. And maybe money will stop you from getting into heaven. But you know what? It still sounds pretty cool to me. It'll buy me a boat. Have you ever thought about that? You know, if we're honest, if we think about it, a lot of times as we think about material blessing, that's the way we view it. When you think about your life, you think about your circumstances, have you ever been tempted to say to yourself, well, yeah, I, I have Jesus, but what I really need for happiness and a better life and peace and contentment would be more money. And James is going to zoom in in this passage, and he's going to say, nope, that is actually not what you need. So let's read it. And, and this passage, I would say, is, is kind of shocking. It kind of catches you a little bit off guard. And so let's just read it. It's James chapter one, 5, verse 1. It says this, come now. Now, we heard that. That's what our last passage started with, James 13. We'll refer to that in a second. But he starts the same way. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters, harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's kind of like intense. And I'm thinking, welcome. Thank you for visiting Foothills. But you want to know something, everybody who lives in Rancho Santa Margarita and Mission Viejo and anywhere else, they need to hear this because this is not the way most people view life, but this 
is true. And then in verse, uh, the next verse in verse 7, James says to these people, he says, hey, be patient, because for many of them, they're actually suffering at the hands of these rich people. Now, this is, as you look at this, one of the things that we want to consider here is the first point, and that is that wealth is not true treasure, but Jesus is. As we look at this passage and as we think about it, um, you think to yourself, okay, so this is a message actually to unbelievers. Why would James put that in the book of James? Why would he give a message to unbelievers? That's kind of a, a challenging thing. Well, think about the difference. How, first of all, how do we know that? Well, one of the things I would say is that this passage, all it does is pr- pronounce condemnation, judgment. There's no hope. There's no appeal to change. There's not, hey, this is what you're thinking and this is what you should be thinking. It's just, hey, you're miserable and you are going to be burned. Your life is a disaster. How terrible it would be to be you. That's it. Like there's nothing else here. So he's talking to unbelievers. Now think about the contrast between this and James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, where he actually is speaking to believers who view business incorrectly. And he's just saying, you're being arrogant, you're boasting, that's evil, don't do that. Instead, say, if the Lord wills. So he's looking at believers in the church who don't think rightly about money, and he's appealing to them to change. And then he hits the unbelievers, and he just says, yeah, you're a sorry person in terrible condition. Why does he do that? Well, um, I would say one reason, actually, is it's a, it's a very important message for us as believers and, I think, also for unbelievers. See, a lot of people feel like they're better off and like they don't need God. But if they thought about that correctly, they would realize they're in trouble. Remember Jonah when he goes to preach to uh, the, the Assyrians, the Ninevites? All he does is walk across the city and say, hey, 40 days, you guys are all going to die. That's it. That was his message. Not God loves you, God would like you to be saved, just you guys will be destroyed in 40 days. And we know Jonah was hoping that would happen, which that's not the attitude that believers are supposed to have. (laughs) Just to clarify, if you're new here. (laughs) That was his only message, and Nineveh heard that, and they said, oh, man, let's repent in dust and ashes. And so it's actually a message that hopefully will make it to the unbelievers and will be redemptive and maybe shock them out of their incorrect view of life. But I think it's actually really important for believers because sometimes believers start to envy wicked people. Sometimes we look at people who have everything and don't have Christ and actually think they're better off. Now, how does that impact our evangelism message. You know, the truth is, you think about your favorite person, the person, the musician you like the best, the actor you enjoy watching, the football star that you enjoy watching play, that you just think, man, if I could trade places with anybody, it'd be him. If you have any affection, any appreciation for any of those people, and you had a chance to talk to them, you should not ask for their autograph. You should take that moment to say, brother, I love you. I love watching you play football. It is so inspiring to me. And if there was one thing I could tell you, 
you need the Lord. If you could spend a minute with an actor, you wouldn't be enamored by who he is. You would realize, I love this person. I, lo I love watching their movies. They bring me joy and happiness. But they need the gospel because in spite of all those things, they're blinded to their real need. And so the problem is that when we as believers don't view life the way we're supposed to, we don't share the gospel the way we should share the gospel. We, we don't have an urgency about those things. Instead of pursuing what God wants us to pursue, we pursue the things of the world. So it hinders evangelism. We need to view life in the context of eternity or we will not live it correctly. So if you look at this, he just says in verse 1, come now. Again, he's just getting their attention. He's saying, this is so ridiculous that you pursue life this way. You are in a terrible state, though you think you're well off. And then he says, you rich. So he's talking to the rich, and, and I just want to take a second and say, there's nothing wrong with being rich. Um, the, the richest, most godly man on earth was who? Okay, uh, let's take a step back. Job was rich. He was, a, he was very well off. Abraham was rich. In fact, one time somebody tried to give Abraham money, and Abraham said, no, I don't want it because I don't want you to think you've made me rich. I want everybody to know that my riches come from God. There are a lot of rich people in the Bible. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, I know how to do with little, and I also know how to do with much. There were times the Apostle Paul had much. So there's nothing wrong with being rich. It's kind of like planning in our last passage. There's nothing wrong with planning. It's just planning without God in mind that's a sin. Being rich apart from God, that's a sin. So there's nothing wrong with being rich, but there is something wrong with these people's riches, their attitude toward it, and how they got rich. And then he just says here, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That is certain judgment. Not, hey, maybe you'll do okay, maybe you won't do okay. He's saying you better weep and howl. Just wail, burst into tears. And just think to yourself, when's the last time you drove through a rich neighborhood and thought, man, these poor people, they ought to just weep and wail as they walk out and get into their Lamborghini. <laughs> That's not how we see it. You know, it's interesting, um, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is actually talking to rich people, and this is what he says here. This is instructions to Christian rich. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, that is a challenge. Um, how is it that we enjoy riches without living for riches? How do we thank God for his good gifts and enjoy those things without loving them instead of him? But he's just saying you need to weep for your miseries that are coming upon you. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16. I, I want to read a passage. You know, it's interesting. Jesus actually tells a story and, and people debate whether or not Luke 16 is a parable 
or if it's a story about a real person. And I just want to go out there and say, I think it's a story about a real person. At no time did Jesus ever tell a parable and use anybody's name. So I think Jesus in this story is actually talking about two people who lived. Whether or not it's a parable doesn't matter because when Jesus told parables, all the details of his parables were like real life things that happen, like sowers that go out to sow and they cast seed and some falls on the road. And like there really were roads and there really were people who threw seeds and there really were thorns and thistles and all those things. So the details of this are true whether or not it's a parable, but I actually don't think this is a parable. I think it's Jesus telling a story about a person. Let me read it to you. And this is why James is saying, weep and wail. Because Jesus, James grew up with Jesus and he learned this from him. Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. More even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here's the story. You got a rich guy. He eats sumptuously. He's got good food every day. And then you got this poor guy who basically eats food that falls on the ground. Actually, he's wishing he could eat food that falls on the ground. You ever ever guys seen, uh, did you guys know that they have actually movies for homeless people, like videos, how to eat out of a dumpster in a healthy way? And, And they try to teach people that. Now, if you could uh, be in Bill Gates' neighborhood, he's pretty rich. You'd rather be Bill Gates or the homeless guy that eats out of a trash can. Because that's basically the story that Jesus is telling here. He's laying that out. And in a sense, he's saying, who would you rather be? And then he goes on and he, he verse, says in verse 22, the poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. That is the future for every unbeliever. Um, If I was burning in a fire, I wouldn't be saying, dip your finger in water and touch my tongue. I'd be thinking, douse me with water. But he's just thinking anything would help. Verse 25, Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And he just says, hey, let's put your temporary, last week we learned about a vapor, our life is a vapor. Let's put your vapor life in the context of eternity. You had good things then and Lazarus had bad things, but now for all eternity, Lazarus will be comforted and you will be in agony. Then he goes on and he says, and besides this, and this is... A scary thought right here, and this is a truth that we need to embrace and hold on to, but he says, besides all this between us and you is a chasm, a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who pass from, in in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Um, Once you leave this life, your eternal destiny is set. There is no hope. There is no change. Think about all the religions that talk about reincarnation. 
You know, it's like if you don't live a good enough life, you come back as a lower form of life. That's not true. There are no do-overs. Nobody gets a second chance. Or people who think that when you die, you'll suffer in hell, and after you've paid for your sins, maybe you could do better. Or if you have friends that will give money to the church, you'll get out. Or maybe there's somebody in this life that could be baptized for you, and then you can get out. All of those things are lies. When you leave this world, your eternal destiny is determined, it is set. There is no change. There is no more of God's mercy, God's grace, God's kindness, unless you're his child. And so once you die, your eternity is set. Look at verse 27. And then he said, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus. I wonder if Lazarus ever shared the gospel with the rich man and if he ever just blew him off and just thought, I don't care what you have to say. You're, you're a poor guy. I got everything. You've got nothing. You have nothing to offer me. I wonder if Lazarus ever talked to him about the Lord. But in this state, he's saying, please go back. Send Lazarus back to talk to my family. So he has memory. He remembers who Lazarus is. This is eternal conscious punishment. He's thinking about the opportunities in his life that he missed, all the choices that he made that led him to where he is. And he says, send him back to warn my brothers. And look what he says here. He says, I have five brothers, verse 28, so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, Moses and the prophets, that's a a description of the Old Testament. All he says is they got the Bible. Let them listen to what God says in his word. That's what they have. And this is amazing here. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes back to them from the dead, they will repent. See, he sees what needed to happen is repentance is in order. And he says, if they don't, verse 31, Abraham says to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. He says, let them listen to the Bible. If they won't listen to the Bible, it actually doesn't matter what you tell them, it won't work. And so there's a lot of things we could learn in there. The power of God's word. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a power of salvation to everyone who believes. And a lot of times we think, oh, no, if, if I'm smart enough, if I'm good enough, if, if I adjust the message enough, maybe somebody will get saved. No, we just read them the Bible because if that won't save somebody, nothing will. And so we realize now that when he looks at him and he says in verse 1, When he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. What you have in this life doesn't matter. Your wealth is not the true treasure. Jesus is. Here's the second thing that we see in in verse 2, and this is important. We see that earthly wealth is not permanent. But I'll say this, a relationship with Jesus Christ is. Earthly wealth is not permanent. Look at this. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver has corroded. Now, there's two views as to what this could mean. One is that these rich people have so much money that they're hoarding it up and they're not using it. They're not wearing their clothes. They're just, they got so many clothes, they're just stashed in a box or a closet somewhere and they're being eaten by moths. 
the other view is that this is just saying you think those things are permanent, but they're not permanent. They're temporary. Um, that's, a, that's a tough choice because both of those things are actually true. You know, saving's not wrong. Uh, the Bible tells us that we need to save for the future, but it is a problem when we lay up treasure. Look at this, Matthew 6, 19. Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. Interesting, James uses Jesus' words. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there will your heart be also. And so these things are not permanent. Wealth is not permanent, but a relationship with Jesus is permanent. You know, I think about Hebrews 13, 5. You know, what, what makes us content with our material possessions is actually whether or not we love Jesus. Like, you think about that. If you're satisfied with what you have, it's because you love Jesus. If you think that the answer to your problems is in material prosperity, then your affections are in the wrong place. You've missed the message of James 4, 13 through 17, that God is in control of everything. He gives everybody everything he ha they have. He can provide for people when they have nothing. Or if you have everything, he can make your, holes with profits so with whole, your pockets with holes so that nothing you have lasts. See, when you realize that, when you think about that, then this is true. Keep your life free from the love of money. Don't love money. Love Jesus. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Your wealth, your riches, there's nothing you don't have today that can't be gone tomorrow. doesn't matter how permanent you think it is. Something can happen that makes it go. But you will never lose Jesus now, here's a third thing that we need to think about. Wealth gained by sin is a curse. Wealth gained by sin is a curse. But Jesus delivers from judgment. Look at, look at James 5.3. Your gold and silver have corroded. And there's two different words for corrosion that are used here. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That second word for corrosion is actually used in James chapter 3 when it's talking about the tongue. And it says that your tongue is full of deadly poison. It says your, your wealth has corroded and the poison of that wealth will testify against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I was, I, I was recalling uh, one time as a youth pastor, I used to help maintain our church vans, and there was these people that used to always break into the vans and steal the speakers. I think I told this story before. I, I just left the church vans unlocked. And I left them unlocked because it was cheaper to buy new speakers and a stereo than it was to buy a new window and new speakers and a stereo. And so I just left it unlocked and figured out, you know, every time they steal the stuff out of the vans, so be it. And one of the guys, one of the youth leaders that used to do things for me, every time they'd steal the speakers, I'd say, hey, go buy some more. <laughs> go put them in there. After like the fifth time, I said, can, just, can you do me a favor? Get a note and put it in the hole behind the speaker and just write in there, these are God's speakers and he's watching you. <laughs> And then put the speaker in there so that as the guy steals the speaker, he then reads that note. 
Well, I just want you to know that about three, four months later, those speakers got stolen. And in probably 15 years after that, those speakers were never stolen again. I wonder just what that meant for that person to read that. You know, maybe they got arrested and went to jail. I mean, who, who knows what happened? But I was just thinking about that. Who would ever steal or harm another person? You know, Proverbs is full of passages that say that if you steal from a poor man, if you abuse a poor person, you are mocking his maker and he will repay you. You know, it's like the guy who's he's so excited about all the stolen merchandise he has and he's so glad that he has it and it's wonderful and he's loving it. And then he gets pulled over by the cops, and he's like, oh, my goodness, when they find this stuff, I'm going to jail. And all of a sudden, he wishes he could push a button and delete it. He wishes it wasn't in his car, because that very treasure will be his undoing. And that's what riches are when they're gained by sinning against other people. It is poison that you would never want to have. And that's what it says in this passage, that 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 poison will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You know, this is the, these are the last days. Jesus is coming back soon, and these people have forgotten about the judgment of God, and they're pursuing wicked wealth. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. These are crying out against you. You know, it's like when Cain kills Abel, and it says the ground is crying out. God hears that and he sees that, but not just that. It says the harvest, the the cries of the harvesters, harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, Lord of hosts, that's a phrase talking about God of armies. That's picturing God in front of all the angels, all his warriors in heaven. And it's like this powerful, awesome God is the one who's hearing about you sinning against people who are made in his image. That's a terrifying thought. And it goes on, and so it says these things, dishonest gain, fraud, the Lord of hosts. Man, that would get your attention. Especially this, Proverbs eleven four: riches do not profit in a day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Um. First Timothy tells us this, as you think about how we should approach money and how a believer should think about money, look at this. But godliness with content is great gain, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now I want you to think about this. This passage is not about you if you're a believer. It's not about you. The previous passage, thinking incorrectly about wealth, that's about you. But this passage is really delivered and given because sometimes as believers, we don't think about life correctly. We look at rich people who hate God, who are wicked, who are sinful, and who profit, and we wish we could be like them and have what they have. People run around, they look so happy, they look so relaxed. It's like if they got fired, it wouldn't matter because they have so much money, they can have anything they want, anytime they want. And we start to look at that and think, oh man, I I wish I had that. Now think about this. If as a believer, you're attracted to worldly wealth instead of Jesus, 
man, that's a scary thought. That's a scary thing because while the love of money is going gonna, is gonna to land unbelievers in hell separated from God forever, this actually says that the love of money has an impact in your life. Look what it says. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then here's the verse that everybody quotes incorrectly. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, if you don't read this passage in James 5, 1 through 6 and take it to heart, you are in danger of destroying your life. And one of the things that I think is pretty important is not only does this need to be the passion in your heart, but I just want to say your kids are learning from your affections, what they see in your life. And it actually doesn't matter what you say. It, it matters what they see lived out in your life. And so this is important for you, but it's not just important for you. It's important for your family. And then here's the, the fourth point that we see here is that wealth creates a false sense of security, but the reality is that Jesus, he is security. Look what it says here. It says, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You know, sometimes we could say, oh, yeah, that's just temporary. These people, they're going to be rich. They're going to enjoy life, but it's temporary. Eventually, they'll lose it. You'll see. They'll suffer. And we do see that sometimes, right? We see this rich man so powerful. He spent so much money implicating so many rich, powerful, important people in his sinful criminal behavior that he feels like, I'm good. My money will get me out. If I go down, lots of people are going down, so I'm secure. And we find out all of a sudden we see in this life, no, that doesn't happen. He ends up in jail and killing himself. And so we see that sometimes those things work their way out in this life. But he says here, you lived your whole life in luxury. You know, everybody doesn't pay the piper in this life. There are some people that everything in life is perfect from the outside until the day they die. But nobody escapes justice. Nobody. And the moment that a person takes their life, I'll just tell you, I don't care how bad prison is, it's better than where an unbeliever goes when they die. Um, suicide's not an escape for an unbeliever from anything. It just ushers you immediately into God's justice, which is not a place you want to be. Lots of people in prison find the Lord. It's too bad that that man didn't live because he might have had eternal hope even though life on this, in this earth was over. But you just look, it says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Man, it was good while it lasted. Have you ever thought about debt? You get a credit card and just go buy stuff, and pretty soon the stuff you, the, the stuff you've, you bought is gone, but you still have the debt? Man, it's temporary. It says, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You want to know what that means? When you're slaughtering an animal to eat, what do you do? <laughs> You look around for the fattest one, and what he's just saying is like, this is the day of slaughter. God's judgment's coming, and guess what you did? You put yourself first in line, and you weren't thinking accurately about that. 
you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay. Jesus says that he takes personally what people do. In 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says, Isn't it right for God to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you? Can you imagine the arrogance and the pride of a person who would sin against a righteous person? A person who loves God, a person who's honoring God, and somebody rich and powerful just says, I'm going to mow over you, you don't matter. Under no circumstances do I ever want to be in the place of attacking a child of God, of setting myself against somebody that loves the Lord. I never want to be in that place. And these people do that without even a consideration. And sometimes you look around at the world and you go, where's justice? There's no justice here. They seem to be prospering. And who's saving the righteous? But we know the end of the story and so here's what, how I want to end things this morning. Um, we all need this message. You know, this isn't just for you. This is for me. Sometimes we can love so much the good things that God gives us, and we can enjoy those things, which is right. But our affection can be transferred to the gift and away from the giver. And that's actually a terrible tragedy. It's a danger that we all face, especially living in the luxury and the wealth that we all live in. That applies to everybody in the United States. So I got a question, who do you love? Um, part of how you know that is, what is the purpose of your life? When you meet people, when you have friends, when you're walking around your neighborhood, when you think about what you're gonna dedicate your time and energy to, what is it? Is it pleasure? Is it happiness? Are you afraid that if you share the gospel with your friends, they might not like you, so you don't do it? Um, do you keep God's word? Do you keep the gospel to yourself and, and just kind of enjoy your time with your neighbors, but you're not willing to actually call them into a relationship with Christ in a loving, gracious, thoughtful way? What, what is your purpose in life? Like, take a step back. Not what do you want to say it is, but what is it really? How does your purpose in life reflect itself in your budget? Do you spend more going out to eat than you invest in God's kingdom? Like, like how does what you spend your money on, what does that say about what you truly value? How does it reflect itself in the priorities that you have toward the people in your life? Um, these are important questions. And we need to really embrace the truth about these things. Sometimes we need repentance. Sometimes we need a life adjustment. But I, I remember shortly, and I'll, I'm just going to close with the story. When I became a Christian, this actually was my issue. I knew the gospel. I knew that everything was true. But I wasn't willing to give up fun and friends. And the day that God allowed me to see that no matter how much I tried to fill my life with happiness and pleasure and actually... I had lots of fun doing that. I became a Christian reminiscing about all the fun I had in my sinful behavior. But at the end of it, I realized, you know, even though it was fun, I'm empty. And I realized that God made me know, knows how to live life better than I do. And I just said, I'll give up everything and follow you. That's, that's the day I became a Christian. This lesson was one that I needed to learn the single thing that was keeping me away from the Lord.
Think about Matthew. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for their soul? And these actually are not just things we talk about. These are things we live out. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And God, I do ask that you would help us to be people that value and treasure the right things, that we would never give you up to embrace something that actually is poisonous to our heart and soul. God, give us a passion and a love and a desire to reach the lost in your name. Amen.